So with that being said, let's start at chapter 1, verse 3. I thank God, here the thanksgiving, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, and I'm sure Paul is bringing up his ancestors, um, and he's going to talk a, a little more about family as he goes. But he's bringing up his ancestors because I'm sure a lot of his family, his Jewish family, are saying that he um, has left the faith, left the cause. One of the things you need to understand about Paul, because it's one of my pet peeves that preachers do. Uh, and by, by the way, actually, yesterday, uh, for those who really, really, really keep a church calendar, Yesterday was the date on the Christian calendar where we pay attention uh, to the conversion of St. Paul. And as a matter of fact, on the Christian calendar today, Anglicans, Roman Catholics pay attention. Today is the feast day of uh, Timothy and Titus. Yeah. So today is Timothy's day. Uh, yesterday it was the day, which makes a little more major feast day, is the day where we pay attention to the conversion of Paul which gave me an opportunity to share with staff yesterday one of my pet peeves. Um, we have historically called it his conversion on the road to Damascus. And it's very important. That episode is very important. He never, and we've talked about it in our Second Timothy study, he, he never really talks about at length what happened to him on the road to Damascus. Uh, I think maybe it was too personal for him. Now, Luke, in the book of Acts, relates it three times. Now, he relates it um, in, in a context of, of Paul speaking in the book of Acts. But again, Luke wrote the book of Acts. So Luke has Paul telling about his so-called Damascus Road experience. Um, the use of the word conversion, I think, is problematic. And it's not used as often now for that Damascus Road experience as it used to be. And let me tell you why. Uh, I've, I've men frequent, frequently mentioned to people that um, uh, one of the big, the two biggest changes in New Testament studies in my lifetime, in post World War II uh, New Testament study, is one that discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls. I mean, the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, tells us so much about the time of Jesus. Uh, there's no Christian documents in the Dead Sea Scrolls. All of the Bible. Hebrew Bible is there, except one book. Do you know what that one book of the Hebrew Bible that's not discovered in the Dead Sea Scrolls? Ruth is there, but you're very close. Esther. Uh, maybe two reasons. Um, uh, one people say maybe because she was a she. Uh, but Ruth was in there. The other reason is, um, and I'm on another tangent, but the other reason is, uh, the book of Esther does not contain the name or the word God. In Judaism, if any document has the word or name God, you cannot destroy it. You save it, you keep it, you store it. Um, uh, that's why if you see a painting or something done from a Jewish culture, it will say G-D. Because you can get rid of that. If you write G-O-D, you can't get rid of that. Which is great. That's why we have the Dead Sea Scrolls. So most of us assume Esther is not in there because they didn't have to preserve Esther. The word God does not occur in the, in the book of Esther. Um, anyway, the two biggest um, things that have happened in um, 
New Testament stays since World War II is discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls has given us a wealth of information about the time period of Jesus. The other thing is um, we, we, we decided after the Holocaust that we need to be careful about reading the Christian Testament or doing the Christian faith in a way that's anti-Jewish. Such as, if you want to have a long, long discussion with me, say in my presence, the God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath and vengeance and judgment. The God of the New Testament is a God of love and grace. Yeah, we'll have a long discussion on that one. Because one has made God schizophrenic. God doesn't change from Old Testament and New Testament. That's a basic theological issue. Plus, it also makes the Jewish faith look horrible that they serve a God. There's as much grace in the Old Testament as there is in the New Testament. And there's as much judgment in the New Testament as there is the Old Testament, per capita. Uh, New Testament, of course, is about the third of the size of the Old Testament. Anyway, so we've tried to be more sensitive to, to our Jewish roots because we got very unsensitive to our Jewish roots, and that's what led a good, a good in quotation marks, uh, Christian country like Germany to adopt Nazism and do what they did to the Jewish people. So we've gotten hesitant to talk about the conversion of Paul for good reasons, because we've, we've, we've read the book. Um, Paul set out on his journey as a, to Damascus as a Jew. He was knocked off the horse and blinded by the light and went down as a Jew. He got up as a Jew. Now, what changed was he became a Jewish Christ follower. He, he added Jesus to his Jewish faith. He didn't get knocked off the horse as a Jew and get up as a Christian. Paul would never have understood that language. Um, he was just a Jew who embraced Christ, who embraced Christ uh, as the Messiah. My other pet peeve with preachers, because it preaches well, and you hate to mess up a good sermon with the Bible, um, but what they'll do is they'll talk about the conversion of Paul, yeah, he, it would have shocked Paul if you told him he is anything other than a Jew up to his dying day. Um, he was a Jew who said, yeah, Messiah has come, uh, but he was Jewish. Um, the other thing that preachers love to do, which is not biblical, they will actually say, you know, he, he was on the horse heading to Damascus as Saul. He got knocked down, and he got up as Paul. <laughs> and I've actually heard some really good preachers who've said that. I want to say, read the book. Um, he, he had two names his whole life. Saulus Paulus. He was Saul in the Jewish world. That was his Jewish name, Hebrew name, Saul. He was Paulus Paul in the Gentile Greek Roman world, Tarsus. So he had both names, Saulus Paulus, both. Uh, which if you look in the book of Acts... He is still called Saul at points after his Damascus Road experience. He didn't get a new religion and a new name on the Damascus Road. He fulfilled, he would have said, he fulfilled his religion um, on the Damascus Road. And his mom and dad gave him the name Saul as Paulus. Uh, he used the name Saul, I'm sure, when he, was among, when he was among Hebrews, when he was among Jews. And he always, read the book of Acts, he always went to synagogues first. Didn't always end well. After literally in Thessalonica two weeks, after a while it didn't end well, so then he goes to the Gentiles. Or he finds those Gentiles who have connected themselves to the Jewish synagogue. That way he found some Gentiles who already knew our book, what we call the Old Testament. He knew our book. He knew about Messiah. He knew about 
the scriptures. So he started out with Jews. He'd find Jewish, Jewish Gentile types. Uh, but then eventually he goes on to Gentiles, and he, he has a lot to teach them because they don't even know the Jew, Judaism of, of the Old Testament. Anyway, so yeah, yesterday was we, we remember in the Christian calendar the, the conversion. I always put that in quotation marks, the conversion of Paul. But today we remember uh, Timothy and Titus. So, um, yeah, Timothy. But I think part of the reason he says here in verse 3, I thank God whom I serve as I did, um, as I serve as did my ancestors. He's saying he hasn't broken with his ancestors. All of his ancestors, probably all, most, looked for a Messiah to come, a Jewish Messiah to come. Uh, Moses called this person to come the prophet. They looked for the coming of the prophet, the Messiah, the anointed, the deliverer. So for ages, they looked for a Messiah. Uh, We Christians say he's showed up. And Paul realizes eventually, Damascus Road, he showed up. Um, But Paul is saying he's not separated himself from his ancestors. He has not left the faith of his ancestors, which, again, you know that. We Christians in our early days had to make the conscious decision to keep the Old Testament. Um, Now, some Christians, their lack of reading it sort of says they got rid of it. But we Christians made the conscious decision uh, that we 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 have both Testaments. My New Testament professor, who some of you know, one of my New Testament professors was Mickey Eifert, who, of course, loved the New Testament. He always used to say to us, don't let me see you with, old, with just a New Testament in your hand. The fact that we print the New Testament separate from the Old Testament says something. So, yeah, make sure you believe, you know, from Genesis to Revelation is Word of God, not Matthew to Revelation. And if you, ignore, if you ignore Genesis through Malachi, then you're sort of saying it's not important. Paul lived and died a Jew uh, who embraced Christ. He was a Jewish Christ follower. That's why in the book of Acts, uh, at the end of the book of Acts, what led to his first imprisonment, and remember we've talked about we think he got out of that first imprisonment, he got to run around a little bit more, and that's why we find this additional information in 1 2 Timothy and Titus. What led to that first imprisonment? He had gone to Jerusalem. He had gone to the temple in Jerusalem, according to the book of Acts, and he um, went and worshipped in the temple of Jerusalem. Before he went, he, he, he went through his purification rites as a good Jew. After he, you know, he's been running around the world preaching Jesus, but he's gone back to Jerusalem. Uh, he, 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 go, he went through purification rites, and he, he went in um, to the temple. Now, by that point, a lot of Jews already was mad. A lot of Jews were mad at Paul. A lot of Jews were mad at us because they say this Jesus is not the one, and we say this Jesus is the one. They say this Jesus is not the one. So when they saw Paul in the temple, at the end of the book of Acts, what got him arrested, was um, they spread the rumor you read in the book of Acts, they spread the rumor that he had brought a Gentile with them into the temple. A non-circumcised Gentile with him into the temple. Um, he didn't. Paul says he didn't. I believe Paul. He didn't. But by that point, so many Jewish religious leaders were mad at Paul because of this Jesus stuff. And because he was running around the world offering this Jesus stuff to all these non-Jews, that by the time he finally... And he actually went back to Jerusalem because he's a good Jew, but he also took an offering 
that you read about this in all of Paul's letters, if you pay attention to his letters, he had, he had collected an offering in, um, in, in Macedonia and among the Gentiles. He had collected an offering to take back to Jerusalem to help the poor in Jerusalem. Now, I'm sure he wanted to help the poor. He had a heart of agape. But I know Paul's a friend of mine, so I think I know also what Paul was doing. He was kind of knitting together the Jewish-Gentile world. So he shows up in Jerusalem with money from the Gentile believers in Christ. Um, anyway, they're still mad at him. So when he goes to the temple, after rites of purification, and he goes to the temple, they, they spread the rumor that he took Trophimus, a Gentile, with him into the temple. Um, so there's a riot. There's no preacher who said everywhere Paul went, he, he either created a riot or a revival, sometimes both. Um, usually, yeah, both, one after the other. But anyway, there was a, a riot among the Jews, but of course Rome's in control. So the Romans have to res- literally rescue Paul from his Jewish brothers. Uh, probably brothers, I doubt there were women in that crowd. But he had to rescue Paul from, from the Jews. And um, so he goes through that, remember he goes that series of trials. This is going to get you back to Paul. He goes through that series of trials by the Romans in Jerusalem. Because he goes to Caesarea, Felix, Festus, Agrippa. He's going through all these trials. But, and they would have said, we don't care about your Jewish stuff, Paul. Go away. But Paul, again, is focused on the gospel. He kept saying, I've been accused of something. And as a Roman citizen, he's a Roman citizen born in Tarsus. As a Roman citizen, I have the right of appeal to Caesar. Caesar's in Rome. But Paul wants to take the gospel to Rome. And if he has to take the gospel in chains, he got a free trip to Rome. You see that in the book of Acts. Uh, that was his first imprisonment. We think, and I'm sure he probably got there. The book of Acts ends with him under house arrest. Um, I'm sure he finally made it before Caesar, and Caesar said, we're talking about what? You know, I'm sure Caesar said, I don't care about Jewish laws. I don't care about Jewish messiahs. Go away. So that's why most of us assume that house arrest you see Paul uh, under at the end of Acts, he gets out of. And that's why he can travel around on a fourth missionary journey. And that's how we make room for first, second Timothy and Titus. Um, but he ends up in chains again. So we're not surprised. Um, and sometimes, yeah, he ends up in chains again. You're going to see he's not opposed to being in chains because it helps him preach the gospel. It got him to Rome, and, it got, and he was able to preach to Roman guards the gospel. So Paul would do just about anything to help further the gospel. But Paul lived and died a Jew, a Christ follower. So he starts out here in verse 3. I, I, he, he's serving God just as his ancestors did. He did not leave the Jewish faith. Which, by the way, and I, I probably said this, but so you know me, sometimes I have a hard time saying Old Testament. Now, I'm fine with us calling it the Old Testament because from a Christian point of view, it is part one. And we have, for 2,000 years, called it the Old Testament. I have a hard time calling it the Old Testament because if I'm ever in a mixed group, if, I'm ever, if I ever have Jews in the room, I would never call it the Old Testament because that's very offensive to the Jewish community. Because when we say Old Testament, New Testament, they hear um, old and then the new and improved, which really is a little offensive. That's why sometimes 
sometimes we'll call it Old Testament or Hebrew Bible, New Testament or Christian Testament. You know, I don't have a problem because I do believe the New Testament completed the Old Testament. Um, so if I mean, I'm assuming most all of you are Christians in this room, so I'll call it Old Testament. But I still almost I'll automatically say Hebrew Bible because it's very offensive to the to the Jewish world when we say, you know, you're old, and particularly here in America, we don't like old stuff. So to call it the old, and again, some of, some of you may treat it this way too. We, um, we, you know, we use old means, you know, old, out of date, antiquated, obsolete. And that's what they sort of hear when we say Old Testament. And that's not paving the way to share Christ with them. You know, they, we have to get them over Holocaust, Old Testament, anti-Semitism, all this stuff. Um, Anyway, Paul lived and died a Jew, as did all of the people in the New Testament, as did all of the early Christian community, as did all of the authors of the New Testament, except one. Who is the one that may not be Jewish? Luke. Luke was probably a, what we call a God-fearer. He was a Gentile who probably had connected himself to the Jewish community. But he's the only, only author we have in the New Testament that was not ethnically a Jew. So this is why Paul can say, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors. Because there were people saying, Paul, you have rejected your ancestors. You have walked away from them. No, he's not. He is serving as did his ancestors with a clear conscience. As I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. He's talking to Timothy. Paul was a prayer. As I remember your tears, we talked last week about, we, we know what he's talking about. He's talking about Acts chapter 20. When he leaves Ephesus, he says he's probably never going to see them again. So they're all gathered there at Miletus as he's leaving Ephesus. Uh, they, they're all crying. I'm sure Timothy's there crying. So he says, as I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that first dwelt in your grandmother Lois. And your mother Eunice, and we know from Acts 16 they were Jews who had become Christ followers. Um, that's why Timothy became a Jewish Christ follower. And now I'm sure, dwell, we don't know a lot about his father. We know his father was Gentile. Don't know if he ever came to Christ, but his mother and grandmother sure were. They were devout Jews who became Christians. Uh, for this reason, here's my two favorite verses, verse 6. For this reason I remind you, Timothy, to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Uh, all of us have the gift of God, but that flame can die quickly. Anything left to itself will deteriorate. I don't care if it's your faith, your garden, your marriage, your health. Left to itself will deteriorate. You know, I don't know why people can't understand that. You have to um, fan into flame your faith. You've got to put yourself in those places where Jesus is happening, those places that can fan your um, faith into flame. So he's reminding Timothy, and here's Timothy, pastor of the church at Ephesus. But we pastor types need to be reminded of this. One of, um, <clears throat> I said I was going to do this, this quickly, didn't I? We're all going to get to verse 8. One of uh, Wallace Chapel, and if you know the name of the famous Methodist preacher, evangelist Wallace Chapel, he's dead now. Any of you remember that name? He was hot when I came into the ministry in the early 1980s, and I was in a service with him one time, great preacher, and I was actually a seminary student. I'll never forget, because this has been so significant for me. I hope it'll be significant to you. He pulled me aside before one service, and he said, son, I was 22 years old, son, don't let serving God ever take the place 
of spending time with God. All of us can get so busy, even serving God, that our prayer life, our time of spending time with God can fade away. You know, I'm so glad Wallace Chapel told me that in 1983. And there's times I have to remind myself of that. You have to fan into flame um, this faith that's within you. And he's referencing his, in quotation marks, ordination, when Paul laid hands on him, ordained him. Verse 7, this is one of my key verses, because I want to share it with about 10 people every day that I meet. Verse 7, for God gave us a spirit not of fear or timidity, same root as Timothy. Uh, for God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power, love, and self-control. Some people just are eat up with the spirit of fear. Their whole life is based on spirit of fear or timidity. Um, God hasn't given us a spirit of fear. Fear should not be the center of who we are. Uh, faith should be the center of who we are. But God has given us these gifts, power, Love and self-control. That, that Greek word self-control there is a complicated word. It can mean self-control or sound mind. Your translation may say sound mind. It's kind of the same thing. A sound mind should help you have self-control. Self-control should help you have a sound mind. But the Greek world knew what Paul was talking about. This sound mind, this sober personality uh, that can be um, the key to being a a self-controlled person. Yeah, one of the things, I, I, so we'll move on now. Uh, I, I, said, I talked a lot about that last week. Um, when I think about the spirit of self-control, something else, and, and the pastor is going to shine through here just a little bit, who's been in churches for um, 30, heading toward 40, well, no. I preached my first sermon in 1980. That's 41, 42 years ago. Gosh. I was three years old when I preached that first sermon. Um, but I've wanted to say over the years, you know, God has given us a spirit of self-control, not a spirit of speaking your mind. Let that sink in for just a minute. I run across people all the time who think it's a virtue that I always speak my mind. That's not a virtue. It's not. So if you think it's a virtue, repent. I'm sure you probably know people in your life who think it's a virtue to always speak your mind. You know, there's times to speak your mind. I'm teaching, um, I know Barbara's a Stephen minister. I get to spend five hours with Stephen ministers to be in training on Saturday teaching self-assertiveness or assertiveness. You're not supposed to be passive. You're not supposed to be aggressive. You're supposed to be assertive. Um, uh, speaking your mind is more aggressive than assertive. Yeah, God has not given us a spirit of, I always speak my mind. God has given us a spirit of self-control. So um, I preached in a black church one time. I preached in a black church several times. And I love preaching in a black church because they help me when I preach. And um, I preached in a black church one time. And I don't remember what all I was preaching about. But when I hit this about... God's given a spirit of self-control, not a spirit to always speak your mind. They got real happy. They helped me preach for about another 20 minutes on that topic. And it's always interesting to me what people seem to resonate with. But most of us know these people who think it's a virtue to always speak their mind. You, know, you always know where they stand. Not a virtue. 
Sometimes it may be appropriate. That's, that's why you need to be assertive, not passive or not aggressive. Just you know how to do it appropriately in balance. Anyway, self-control is a good thing. Uh, fear is a bad thing. Self-control is a good thing. One of my favorite verses. Okay, now let's move on. Um, yeah, for 15 minutes. Let's move on. Uh, make some progress. Look at verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. Keep in mind, he's calling Timothy back to come see him while he is in prison in Rome. He's wanting to give Timothy um, the leadership of the early Christian movement. So he says, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. Of course, he'd say the same thing to us. Sometimes um, we're not called to be aggressive. Sometimes we are called to be assertive. Power is one of the gifts. Uh, in verse 7, we're called to be assertive. Sometimes you need to speak up about Jesus. Sometimes you don't let that um, terrible joke just kind of fly by. Sometimes, sometimes when I'm with a group of men, it's never happened with a group of women, when I'm with a group of men, sometimes they'll share jokes with me. One of my... One of my favorite stories. Um, uh, years ago, when I was pastoring in Archdale, the, the, the family that owned the Nautilus here in town um, were members of my church. And um, they gave me a great gift of a free membership to Nautilus. Loved going to Nautilus back in those days. One day, I was in the, um, the um, locker room changing clothes. And, you know, I looked real normal, you know, back there changing um, uh, I think it's going back from my gym clothes into my street clothes. And there was these two guys having conversations really on either side of me. But there's also a church member of mine in the locker room. Well, I'm just keeping my mouth shut because I'm busy. These two guys are having a conversation. It's going south in a hurry. <laughs> it's becoming locker room talk, which I, don't, I never condone. It's not just because I'm a male. I don't talk like that. Well, they start heading down a path... From the other side of the locker room, my church member says, Preacher, what do you think about that? <laughs> it changed quickly. All of a sudden, where they were heading in their conversation just stopped. So um, I should have said something before my church member called them out. But sometimes we, we, should, we should not be ashamed of, the, of our testimony about Jesus. Nor of me, notice Paul says, nor of me, his prisoner. But sharing the suffering for the gospel by the power of God. He says, don't be ashamed of me, which means when you come to Rome, you have to find me and you have to acknowledge me. I'm going to ask you at the end of the letter to bring stuff to me in jail. So you're going to have to let everybody know you know this convict and you like this convict and you're going to support this convict. So he, he's saying, don't be ashamed of me. He says, share in the suffering. He's inviting Timothy to do several things here. Take over the leadership of the Christian movement. And he's inviting Timothy to, to suffer. To share in the kind of suffering Paul's suffering in. Uh, just read something this week. Uh, people have heard me say often because I've said it a lot. More people died for their faith in Jesus Christ in the 20th century than any other century in Christian history. Um, we're in the 21st century now. And it's not going the other direction. As a matter of fact, we got the numbers now for 2021. Uh, 1,000 more people died for their faith in Christ. And the numbers are fairly astronomical. Uh, 
people who die for their faith in Christ. Uh, it, um, around the world, a lot of Christians suffer a great deal for their faith in Christ. And a lot of Christians pay with their life uh, around the world. Uh, the, the worst country on the list that just came out, this won't surprise you, the worst country on the list that came out uh, as far as increase of persecution of Christians, Afghanistan. Yeah, we need to help the Christians and those who helped Americans. Uh, we didn't leave them to a good situation in Afghanistan. Uh, the, the worst country per capita for persecuting Christians is Nigeria. One out of every four death of a Christian occurs in Nigeria. Because what kills most Christians around the world today, used to be communism, but what kills most Christians around the world today uh, is extremist Islam. Anyway, Paul is inviting, because this was, that was Paul's world. Christians suffered. Uh, so he's inviting Timothy to come visit him in prison and to join him in suffering for the sake of the gospel. Verse 9, uh, now these mention share the suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Now he's mentioned God, verse 9, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Yeah, Paul's the one who tells us over and over and over, we're saved by grace through faith. It's not something we do. It's a gift we receive. Uh, Paul says that over and over and over. Every branch of the Christian church acknowledges this. Some Christians pay more attention to it than others. Every branch of the Christian church acknowledges we're saved by faith through grace. You know, but I, again, I pastored for a long time. Uh, I see a lot of us, we can sing Amazing Grace 4,000 times and still think it's all about our effort. It's all about my good deeds outweighing my bad deeds. And here we go sing Amazing Grace again. Um, we're saved by grace. It's a gift that's offered to us. Uh, we just received the gift. The only thing, the old Puritans used to say, the only contribution we bring to our salvation is our sin. Yeah, we have to acknowledge we need the gift. We have to acknowledge our broken nature, our nature that needs redeemed. Uh, we bring that, and, and once we acknowledge that, we, we can receive the gift of salvation. Paul's referencing that. But notice he's also, in, in light of, we're saved by grace through faith. All this stuff is a gift. Um, we, are, we are called with a holy calling. Or you can translate that word called, and I think the New Living Translation does this. You're called to a holy life, maybe. But you can say we're called with a holy calling or we're called to a holy life. We are called to holiness. That's why there might be some things in life, you know, they won't, it won't make you go to hell over it but it's not part of a holy life. You know, sometimes when my kids were growing up, and they would come to me and say, why can't we fill in the blank? And it, it, usually it was not an evil thing they were talking to me about. And I would just say, as a Christian, it's not something we do. You know, and so, we, we, you know, it's not, it's not a matter of salvation or not, but sometimes it's a matter of holiness. It's a matter of a holy life. 
And there's some things we don't do, not because of sin is to hell, but we don't do it because it hurts our witness, it hurts our testimony, and it is not compatible with a holy life. So, um, yeah, we um, holiness, we're called to holy living. We have been given a holy calling. So that, that means we pay attention to how we live. We don't go to, trying to think of a topic, um, We don't go to hell for going to Disney World on Sunday, but it may not be part of our holy living. It used to really drive my kids crazy on vacation that Sundays made a difference. You know, but my kids got so tired of hearing me say to them, God's more concerned about your holiness than your happiness. Dad, there's an old movie about Methodists, by the way, called One Foot in Heaven. You ever seen it back in the 40s? Only Methodists would even, I think, appreciate it. But go Google it. Go get off YouTube. One Foot in Heaven. Frederick March, March is the Methodist preacher. He has to set his kids down. He's in the 1920s. He has to set his kids down. And he says, as Methodist, you can say Christian, but the movie's about a Methodist preacher. He says, as Methodist, we have one foot in this world and one foot in heaven. That just means, it may not be a bad thing to do. It just may not be something... Actually, Frederick Marx, the Methodist preacher, says, we live according to the discipline. You Methodists know what that is. We live according to the discipline. That's why we have one foot here and one foot in heaven. Anyway, we have a holy calling. You know, Christians today forget that. It's not whether or not it will send you to hell. We're saved by grace through faith. But is it part of a holy life? Does it benefit our witness um, to Jesus Christ? Anyway, so look at verse 10. Uh, I like starting at the beginning of a sentence. But anyway, he's talking about gospel, talking about holy living, talks about, um, um, you know, purpose and grace that God in Christ has, has accomplished in our lives. Verse 10, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ. That word appearing almost always refers to the second coming. Here it refers to the first coming. His appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who abolished death. You know that from Easter. Who abolished death. Uh, and, and who brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Uh, you know, in the Old Testament, Hebrew Bible, if there's a Jew in the room, the Old Testament, there's, there's not much about the afterlife. You know, about the best you get in the Old Testament is if you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, your shepherd God walks with you. That's wonderful. I still like to know a little bit more about what happens on the other side of that valley. Um, one of the new things about the New Testament is we learn a lot about what happens on the other side. You know, because Easter, resurrection. There's a reason we changed our worship day from the seventh day of the week to the first day of the week as Christians. It happened during the New Testament period. There's evidence in the New Testament. We moved from the seventh day of the week when Jews still worship. We made the first day of the week because what does the first day of the week celebrate every time we gather? What does the first day of the week acknowledge every time we gather? Easter. Yeah, that's why we call it the Lord's Day. We know it's not the... His Jewish Sabbath, that's seventh day of the week. Jews didn't. Jews are still doing it. Um, but first day of the week is the new day, the, the resurrection day, the Easter day. So yeah, this Easter stuff's a big deal. I shouldn't be telling, needn't tell you that. But this Easter stuff's a big deal. It changes everything. So in Christ, 
through Easter, he's brought immortality to life. You know, in the Old Testament, you've got the concept of Sheol. Death is sort of a dark nether world. There's nothing positive in the Old Testament about death. That's why a lot of Orthodox Jews, if you ask them about death, their big answer is going to be, we don't know. Be faithful here and now and don't worry about the afterlife. But there's not much in the Old Testament. There's glimpses here and there pointing to the New Testament. Uh, Job says, I believe that my Redeemer liveth and on this earth he shall stand. So there's glimpses in the Old Testament. But yeah, it just, as Paul says to Timothy, uh, Jesus brought immortality to light through the gospel. You know, what happens at death is, is mostly New Testament stuff. Mostly New Testament stuff. I like knowing that he's going to walk with me through the valley of the shadow of death. You know, that's obviously there in the Old Testament. God's always with us. God's, but uh, yeah, give me a little more. If you want that little more about immortality, you got to look at the New Testament. Verse 11, for which, back, now here's where Paul gets a little um, personal. For which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. He's been sent by Christ, apostle, and a teacher. He is both preacher and teacher. I'm adamant that all pastors need to be both. That's why uh, Paul in Ephesians 4 verse 11 actually almost he, he, he almost um, makes it a joint word pastor teacher those of us who are called to shepherd we're called to be pastor teachers now I know some pastors who don't want to teach they don't want to read enough or study enough to teach they may read enough or study enough to get a sermon occasionally um, I send them to John Wesley John Wesley who's kind of hero of mine, John Wesley had strong opinions about pastors who would preach but couldn't teach or wouldn't teach or wouldn't study to teach. Obviously, Paul was both teacher, preacher, and apostle. He's sent by Jesus. He's, he's been by autobiographical, verse 11. Verse 12, uh, which is why I suffer. Again, we know what Paul's inviting Timothy to. He's saying, join me in suffering, which is why I suffer as I do. And uh, here's, here's a famous verse, because some of us grew up with a famous gospel hymn based on this verse. But I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Um, probably some of you, uh, those of you that are probably at least as old as I am, can remember that old gospel song, I know in whom I have believed. This actually was put back in the Methodist hymn in 1989. I know in whom I have believed. That's a verse here. Paul's saying, I know. Not I know about in whom I, whom I, he said, I know whom I have believed. I know Jesus. Not just about Jesus. I know Jesus. I know whom I have believed. And I am persuaded that he is able. And you can just kind of stop right there. I know in whom I have believed. And I am persuaded that he is able um, the rest of the verse gets a little cloudy, but I think we know what he's saying. Uh, I know in whom I have believed and persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed against that day. Um, yeah, Paul gets a little cloudy at that point. We think what Paul's saying is, Paul's saying, whatever it is I've given to Jesus, or whatever Jesus has given to me, Jesus can guard, Jesus can protect, Jesus can keep, Against that day, that's the return of Christ. That's the end of history. Whatever I've committed to Christ, whatever Christ has committed to me, he is able. Just stop there. He is able to keep that which I have committed to him against that day. 
You know, um, some people know they're saved by faith, and then they think it's all up to them. That's not Bible Christianity either. You're saved by faith, you're kept by faith. I am persuaded that he is able, he is able to keep. Uh, It's not about how hard I hold on, it's about how hard he holds on. So that's why Paul's saying this. Again, keep in mind where Paul's at. He's in chained, in prison, facing death. So he's saying, I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed against, committed to him against that day. So when the end comes, Paul's going to be okay, is what he's saying. Uh, verse 13, we can wrap up this check section. Follow the pattern of, of the sound words. That's just good doctrine. Again, that's, there's a need to talk about that in this age. Good doctrine. Um, you know, it's Jude who says, Contend for the faith that was once delivered by the apostles. We contend for the faith. We don't make it up as we go along. So here Paul says basically the same thing Jude says. Follow the pattern of the sound words, the good doctrine, the good words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. I think that just goes back to fan the flame. You know, if your mother, if your grandmother has helped the Holy Spirit place faith in you, don't lose it. Fan the flame, guard the deposit. Um, let me end with this. I did say last week, because Paul says, For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Uh, because of that verse and some other verses, uh, a lot of people, and I read somebody yesterday, said this. A lot of people wax eloquent about how shy Timothy must have been, how timid Timothy must have been. Um, and I used to think that's probably true. You know, there's, there's places Paul says, don't, Timothy, don't let people look down on you because of your young age and all this stuff. The older I get, though, I'm not sure that Timothy was exceptionally shy or timid or fearful. I think he's probably just average. Because the older I get, the more I realize it's normal to just not always be courageous. It's easier to stay in the harbor, stay in the ship, stay in the boat, stay in the comfort. It's just easier. I'm not, I don't have to be unusual to want that. We don't have to be unusual to want that. Um, So I think Timothy's probably just sort of normal at this point. But Paul still had, but think about where Paul's calling him to and what Paul's calling him to do. So Paul's saying, yeah, I got to encourage you. I got to help you find this courage and stand up. So, you know, don't ever say, and the reason I say that is this, is, you know, don't ever look at somebody else who appears to be really courageous and just say, well, that's not me. God won't give you a pass on that. He really won't. You know, don't look at somebody else who's living by faith and you're living by fear and say, well, that's just not me. Again, God won't give you a pass on that. You might need to hear the words of Paul. We all need to hear those words on a regular basis. You know, God has not given us a spirit of fear or timidity, but of power, love, and a sound mind or self-control. Um, guard the deposit that's in you. Fan the flame. Don't let people look down on you for whatever reason. So we all need to hear that and then try to practice the courage to do whatever God's calling us. Well, let me pray with you. I'm three minutes over. Let me pray with you.